This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 4. Externalizing the Burden of War to the Machine the history of surrogate warfare has always revolved around the human warrior, using his cognitive and physical abilities to determine the outcomes of battles, campaigns, and wars. Starting with the RMA in the 1990s, surrogacy in war has changed dramatically. Amid the technological process in the field of precision-guided munitions, PGMs, unmanned platforms, cyber technology, and artificial intelligence, AI, Surrogate warfare will increasingly rely on the machine as the surrogate of choice. This chapter identifies three technologies that make surrogate warfare by machine a more likely reality of warfare in the 21st century. First, the evolution of drone technology offers some interesting insights into the birth of technological surrogates. Second, the emergence of cyber technology has opened the cyber domain as a domain for surrogacy par excellence. Here, particular attention is devoted to social media and its role in subversive operations. This chapter will open up the discussion on technology as a surrogate, focusing on emerging autonomous weapon systems, AWS, a paradigmatic shift from the way humans have fought wars throughout history. AWS can be combined in both the physical and digital domains. These weapons, for the first time in human history, will be able to fully substitute human capability on the battlefield. Drone Warfare – Relying on Unmanned Flying Surrogates Historically, technology has been a force multiplier in war, allowing the warrior to either inflict more harm on the enemy or reduce harm to himself. The use of technology as a way to externalize the burden of warfare is recent, however. Indeed, for technology to fulfill the category of surrogacy, it has to be capable of absorbing the burden of war by allowing warfare to be conducted either discreetly, without massive public awareness at home, or with plausible deniability before the international community. Thus, discretion and deniability could be achieved only through a degree of remoteness, namely, allowing technology to act more or less autonomously removed from the direct physical proximity to the human operator. Both the invention of the engine and flying were therefore preconditions for this development. Yet, even when states could rely on divisions of armed vehicles or squadrons of planes, the ability of externalizing the burden of warfare to a technological surrogate was very limited. When the Allies resorted to strategic bombing of Germany during World War II, Allied flight crews still paid a heavy price. Moreover, the massive use of strategic bombers over European skies was impossible to hide and thus, deniability was impossible to achieve. It was not until the invention of standoff weapons, which were launched from a distance and allow attacking personnel to evade retaliatory fire, that technology could be conceived to develop into a surrogate. Standoff weapons are usually used in denial or counterforce strategies with the aim of reducing or eliminating the adversary's ability to resist. This can be achieved either by directly destroying the enemy's fielded forces through direct attrition or by attacking targets of strategic importance, such as lines of communications, vital choke points, or other centers of gravity. 
Arguably, ballistic missiles are the first standoff weapon that can be considered a technological surrogate since they allowed war to be waged remotely, neither directly endangering the human operator nor putting the patron's population at risk. Over time, ballistic missiles evolved into potent intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, that, equipped with nuclear warheads, could deliver apocalyptic destruction remotely from one side of the globe to the other. It was the destructive power of nuclear weapons that triggered President Harry Truman to decide to drop a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki instead of ordering a ground invasion of Japan toward the end of World War II. Depending on where the invasion would have taken place and how long the war would have carried on, estimates of U.S. military fatalities ranged from 20,000 to 300,000. The trade-off between protecting the lives of U.S. military personnel over those of Japanese civilians was thus at the heart of Truman's decision. This has led some to conclude that states, including democracies, tend to prize victory in preserving the lives of their own people above humanity in warfare. In the case of ICBMs, however, the development of nuclear strategy that converged into the, into the concept of mutually assured, assured destruction made the civilian population the key target of retaliatory strikes. This type of coercive strategy relies on punishment, which aims at destroying those things that the enemy values the most. Air power theorists' understanding of punishment has traditionally focused on strategies aimed at imposing civilian suffering through campaigns that seek to raise societal costs of continued resistance to levels that overwhelm the target state's aim. Thus, for Giulio Duet, the tar di direct targeting of the population would trigger popular unrest and then force the government to make concessions. For the first chief of staff of the Royal Air Force, Hugh Trenchard, a similar effect could be achieved by striking German industrial centers so as to create mass unemployment, which would in turn induce the working class to rise up against the government. Air theorist Alexander P. Dasaversky argued for a broader range of targets by striking all aspects of industrial infrastructure to achieve similar results. These punishment strategies all share the same theoretical assumption, namely that harming the civilian population will lead the government to comply with coercers' demands instead of enduring further suffering. These assumptions hold true only when the adversary does not have the capability to retaliate. Therefore, in the age of mad, ICBMs are not really suitable as surrogates because their destructive power and traceability invites retaliation. That is to say, ICBMs do not allow for the externalization of the burden of war. More likely, they will increase the burden of warfare for both civilian and military targets, for both the coercer and the defender. The birth of technological surrogacy is rooted in the early days of ballistic missiles. The invention of flying, coupled with the invention of the jet engine, set the scene for unmanned aerial platforms. Throughout World War II, Nazi Germany developed the predecessor of unmanned air power, the V-1, a jet engine-propelled cruise missile launched in the late days of the war against Britain. Of the 10,492 V-1s launched against Britain, only 20% reached targets in the London area, where 92% of the weapon's victims, 6,184 civilians, were killed, whereas German bombing from manned aircraft appeared far more effective, killing over 50,000 civilians. The V-1's ineffectiveness was the result of its guidance system, which directed a pilotless aircraft in a straight line for a preset distance. 
The 1950s and the 1960s were marked by no major developments, except maybe the development and use of the lightning bug drone for reconnaissance purposes. Real military application of unmanned aircraft or drones started with the Vietnam War. It was then that the lightning bug drone made the first appearance of an unmanned aerial platform that could deliver ordnance onto a target. The lightning bug drone, equipped with Maverick missiles, would indeed pave the way to the Predator Hellfire system 30 years later. However, the majority of unmanned aerial platforms were still used to conduct reconnaissance or surveillance missions. By the end of the Vietnam War, more than 3,400, or 12%, of the reconnaissance missions flown by the U.S. Air Force were conducted by drones. Similar to the V-1 experience, however, the use of drones in the Vietnam War was still falling short of showing the same reliability and precision as manned aircraft. It was the Israelis who improved the use of drones in combat. In addition to observation missions, the Israeli Air Force used American-made Chukar target drones as decoys to provoke Egyptian radars into giving away their positions, allowing the Israelis to find the radar sites and bomb them during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. In 1981, an Israeli-manufactured scout drone managed to take real-time pictures of Syrian anti-aircraft systems, a capability that was more heavily used in 1982 during Israel's First Lebanon War to provide surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance functions. Israel's deployment of drones in Lebanon was transformative. They provided the patron with the ability to observe and then eliminate a target from the sky, similar to a sniper. Drones, but also cruise missiles, and thanks to the invention of the Global Positioning System, PGMs transformed air power from being merely a means of interdiction and punishment to a tool of decapitation strategies. Denial and punishment are outside-in approaches because they focus on the destruction of peripheral forces to incapacitate the inner source of military power. Punishment and denial strategies try to translate military effects on the enemy's center of gravity into strategic and political outcomes. Decapitation is, however, an inside-out approach in which, by severing the brain, that is, the enemy's leadership, the opponent is incapacitated from the inside-out. As mentioned above, drones, cruise missiles, and PGMs are well-suited for decapitation strategies. The key difference between cruise missiles and drones is that the former is destroyed when it attacks a target, while the latter can be recovered. A cruise missile can be compared to a pilotless plane that, with some degree of autonomy, carries a warhead. Together with modern PGMs, which are laser or satellite-guided weapons, or a combination of both, Cruise missiles have increased the superiority of theater air power over strategic bombing because they enable the waging of an independent air attrition offensive against a stationary, dug-in force, which can substantially destroy the enemy force. They allow a degree of externalization of the burden of warfare as they allow, in certain cases, the reduction of the political costs associated with using manned aircrafts or ballistic missiles. For instance, after Al-Qaeda simultaneously struck the two U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in August of 1998, the Americans launched 13 cruise missiles on the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum, Sudan, as well as 66 on training camps in coast Afghanistan on August 20 of 1998. The Al-Shifa factory was chosen because it was believed to produce nerve gas that could be acquired by Osama bin Laden. 
From the very beginning, President Bill Clinton ruled out the use of military personnel for this operation in close proximity to the target area for reasons of operational and political risk. Also, the use of cruise missiles offered the advantage of preserving discretion and deniability. In the end, although the military objectives were met, the operation was a strategic failure, as the factory was neither producing weapons of mass destruction nor owned by bin Laden. Nevertheless, ever since the mid-1980s, the use of standoff weaponry, such as PGMs, cruise missiles, and drones, has helped patrons to reduce the political and operational risks involved in conducting counter-terrorist operations overseas. As such, they have become an integral part of a patron's surrogate toolbox. During the 1980s, the use of force protection developed into a key driver of strategic planning. The cruise missile became the weapon of choice because it does not endanger a human operator and thus may be perfectly suitable for operations where a nation is unwilling to accept risks of having personnel caught and interned. That is to say, standoff weapons were favored because they were believed to save soldiers' lives, disregarding the fact that they shift the burden of war from the combatant to the civilian community. At the end of the 1980s, a New York Times article highlighted the euphoria that drones sparked initially. Quote, With the drones, there is no need to send manned aircraft for a look around and risk pilots against anti-aircraft batteries. Military leaders, in planning how the American forces in the Persian Gulf region might be used, have been concerned about the possibility of a pilot falling into Iranian hands. The drone aircraft will help alleviate this concern, just as an earlier version of the system did for the Israeli military during combat with the Syrians in the Bekaa region of Lebanon. Israel used drones to spot air defense sites, then attacked the sites with aircraft and artillery before the Syrians could use their weapons. End quote. The debate on the RMA that emerged from the 1991 Gulf War did not initially focus on drones, but rather on the transformative impact of standoff musicians. Munitions, such as cruise missiles and PGMs, on the defeat of Saddam Hussein. Indeed, although less than 10% of the weapons used against Iraqi forces and strategic infrastructure were precision munitions, the Gulf War set the stage for a new Western way of war, one relying increasingly on precision weaponry launched remotely. Cruise missiles, however, lack the survivability and flexibility of an aircraft carrying far more precise, larger, and penetrating laser-guided bombs, which can attack multiple pinpoints on a single pass. PGMs, though improving accuracy, did not solve the fundamental problem of force protection. Weaponized drones would combine the standoff advantages of cruise missiles with the accuracy and flexibility of PGMs to become the first real technological surrogate in the U.S.-led war against al-Qaeda in the early 2000s. Faced with a non-traditional enemy that would use asymmetrical warfare tactics and take refuge in ungoverned spaces across the globe, the United States primarily opted for decapitation strikes to fight al-Qaeda and global terrorism. One of the first instances of the use of drones for decapitation purposes, however, was the Israeli strike on Sheikh Abbas al-Mosawi on February 16, 1992, when a scout drone tracked down the leader of Hezbollah and a missile launched from a helicopter killed him. Such advanced uses of drones for decapitation strikes inspired the CIA, which understood early on how effective remote warfare could be to wage wars in the shadows. In 1993, the CIA started operating NAT-50 drones in Bosnia. 
Because of its relative effectiveness, the CIA and the Pentagon developed a more advanced version, the Nat 750-45, which would become known as the Predator. When Al-Qaeda attacked the U.S. on September 11, 2001, the U.S. Air Force had nine Predator drones and would later lose three of them in one month. It was at that time, also, that the first-ever Predators equipped with Hellfire missiles were used in combat missions in Afghanistan. Weaponized Predators were then employed to eliminate enemies in and outside of war zones. Muhammad Atef, Al-Qaeda's military chief and bin Laden's deputy, was the first known casualty of a U.S. Predator strike in November of 2001. In November 2002, Al-Qaeda operatives Qayyad al-Harethi and Abdul al-Fatani, suspected of, ha of having been involved in the strike against the USS Cole in Aden in 2000, were killed in drone strikes conducted by the CIA. In 2004, Pakistan granted the Americans the right to conduct drone decapitation strikes against an influential member of the Taliban, Nek Mohammed. Pakistan was adamant that it had to retain plausible deniability and thus delegated the strike to the Americans, who were able to cover up their traces by relying on a drone as a technological surrogate. This campaign of targeting high-value al-Qaeda targets would last until 2007. The CIA's most expansive use of drone strikes against high-value targets around the world began at the end of the George W. Bush era and came of age under the Obama administration. Thus, in 10 years, from 2004 to 2014, 408 drone strikes, killing an estimated 2,400 to 3,900 people, were conducted by the CIA in Pakistan alone. The agency had developed the perfect surrogate, delivering force remotely, cheaply, and with plausible deniability and discretion to targets across the globe, all at minimal political costs. For the Americans, drones would substitute the infantry soldier whenever the U.S. military could not operate openly on the ground. Not surprisingly, then, since 9-11, the Americans have carried out 95% of all non-battlefield targeted killing with drones. The use of weaponized drones represents the first true application of a machine as a surrogate. Drones minimize the exposure of the infantrymen to operational risks, thereby minimizing the political risks for policymakers to employ them. Under the radar of public awareness, drones provide the option of remotely conducting protracted counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations far removed from home over an extensive period of time. With the burden of war being externalized to these unmanned platforms, the bar for waging war overseas has been significantly lowered. The political and psychological barriers to using lethal forces are decreasing, making it easier for policymakers to use force discreetly without public or political authority. It is worth noting that non-state actors such as Hezbollah, ISIS, and the Houthi rebels have now also acquired these capabilities. Drones provide these groups with intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and in some instances, offensive capability, which can act as a force multiplier while shielding their own operatives from operational risks. Precision-guided munitions, drones, and unmanned vehicles act as a technological surrogate that alters the state's decision-making regarding the use of force. They lower the political threshold for their use as well as slow the likely loss of public support inherent to sustained military campaigns. Some, therefore, see similarities between these weapons and cyber weapons. Although the analogy bears some truth, it does not, however, appreciate the transformative impact that the weaponization of the cyber domain will have 
on the nature of warfare. Warfare in the Cyber Domain The Cyber Domain has become a new dimension of international politics in the fifth dimension of warfare, besides ground, air, sea, and space. NATO has recognized cyberspace as a military domain since July of 2016, accounting for the emergence of a new class of weapons, cyber weapons. A cyber weapon can be defined as a computer code that is used or designed to be used with the aim of threatening or causing physical, functional, or mental harm to structures, systems, or living beings. Cyber weapons cover a spectrum of ranges, that ranges from malicious software that influences a system from the outside without being able to penetrate it, to malware capable of penetration and independent interference with the output process so as to cause functional and physical disruption. Traditional theories on the military application of cyber technologies distinguish between three categories on the offensive use of cyber weapons, subversion, espionage, and sabotage. What distinguishes these categories from one another are the required levels of technical know-how and the required mobilization of human capacity. Whereas sabotage requires high levels of technical know-how, it does not require extensive manpower to be carried out. On the other end of the spectrum, subversion does not require a mastery of technical expertise, but relies on masses of consumers to spread narratives. Sabotage by Cyber Weapon the earliest alleged case of the use of a cyber weapon for sabotage was by the CIA against the Trans-Siberian Gas Pipeline in 1982. The CIA may have embedded a Trojan horse in software and microchips stolen by the Soviet Union. The stolen material ran smoothly for a few months, but then the pipeline software went haywire, accelerating pump activity and fiddling with the valve settings to produce overpressure that led to the pipeline bursting. The bombing of a Syrian nuclear reactor in Deir ez Zor in 2007 by the Israeli Air Force during Operation Orchard was most likely enabled by the hacking of the Syrian air defenses. Israeli cyber operators seemed to have taken over as system administrators and manipulated the sensors of the Syrian radars in order to deceive their operators. As with the Soviet pipeline explosion, the Israeli penetration of the air defense system did not leave any trace behind. Unlike the 2009 Stuxnet targeted against Iranian nuclear enrichment facilities, which nonetheless ended up collaterally infecting over 100,000 Windows systems worldwide. Stuxnet was engineered to undermine Iran's nuclear weapon program by infecting at least 14 industrial sites, one of which was a uranium enrichment plant. The 500-kilobyte computer worm disabled Iranian centrifuges that were integral to the enrichment of nuclear material. The virus did so by attacking and compromising the supervisory control and data acquisition and programmable logic controller systems, which caused the fast-spinning centrifuges to break down. Stuxnet disabled at least a 1,000 centrifuges, or more than 10% of the capacities of the plant in Natanz. Because of the complexity of the malware, Stuxnet relied on four zero-day exploits, which is a vulnerability that is unknown to the hacker's community and thus detectable. The complexity of the code used suggests that a lot of know-how and resources were necessary to develop this cyber weapon. In 2013, former U.S. National Security Agency, NSA, contractor Edward Snowden alleged that the U.S. and Israel were behind this attack. 
In May of 2012, a new malware named Flame, exhibiting similar characteristics to Stuxnet, was found. Then, in August of 2012, Shamoon, a computer virus resembling Flame, disabled 30,000 computers of the Saudi Arabian oil company Aramco. Iran was suspected to be behind this attack. Shamoon resurfaced through three distinct waves from November of 2016 to January of 2017. The malware targeted specific critical sectors for Saudi Arabia, including government, industry, telecom, and transportation, wiping out hard drives across organizational networks. In August of 2017, Saudi Arabia was once again targeted by new malware, which attacked a petrochemical company plant, not to destroy its data, but to trigger an explosion instead. This string of events suggests a worrisome escalation in the use of cyber weapons proliferated and employed by a variety of patrons. The fact that no conclusive evidence could be provided about the source of these attacks illustrates how nicely cyber weapons can provide the patron with plausible deniability. The fact that cyber weapons can also be reverse-engineered makes them a double-edged sword. However, as this surrogate can be caught, re-engineered, and employed against the original patron. The autonomous character of cyber surrogates makes them uncontrollable entities that share similarities with biological viruses released into an unconstrained environment. For instance, the makers of the Mirai botnet, three college students in their early 20s, responsible for the first distributed denial-of-service, or DDoS, attack relying on connected devices, released their malware source code on the website Hack Forum in September of 2016. In the five months that followed, over 15,000 DDoS attacks were attributed to variations of this Mirai. One of these attacks targeted the domain name server DIN, paralyzed millions of computers, and almost brought down the internet in North America. Thus, although not delivering a kinetic effect, cyber weapons can nonetheless have an immense disruptive impact without putting the patron's civilian or military capacity at risk. Cyber weapons can disrupt networks critical to not just military but also civilian infrastructure, as the potential for collateral damage is exponential once these weapons are released into the wild. While malware such as Stuxnet are offensive cyber weapons, the public cybersphere has become increasingly the new battlefield in which disruption is no longer achieved through sabotage but through subversion. The subversive elements of social media make it a surrogate to be reckoned with. The Subversive Impact of Social Media The rise of the Internet 2.0 in the early 2000s contributed to the explosion of social media. Unlike the Internet 1.0, which was characterized by static HTML web pages, the use of the Internet in the Internet 2.0 is characterized by the user's ability to interact and collaborate with one another through virtual dialogue. In contrast to the passive consumption of content in the early days of the Internet, the Internet 2.0 allows for the creation of user-generated content in virtual communities, such as social networking sites and wikis. Because of the speed of technological development and innovation, any attempt to develop a taxonomy of social media is bound to become very quickly obsolete. One attribute uniting social media platforms, however, is that they allow for the interactive communication between people without spatial limits, time constraints, or restriction on freedom and offer the opportunity to transfer the content of any visual, voice, or written message. 
the emergence of smartphones, and the improvement of mobile technology further contributed to the reach of social media at the end of the 2000s, allowing them to penetrate deeper than conventional media. Facebook's 1 billion monthly active users in 2012 more than doubled to 2.2 billion by 2017. If the Facebook community were a country, it would be almost double the size of China. Consequently, the network societies built in the cyberspace by social media have become a source of immense transformative power, reaching and mobilizing potentially hundreds of millions of individuals within a transnational, global public sphere. The impact on sociopolitics in both liberal and illiberal countries has been highly disruptive. As Lucas Kello notes, quote, Information is no longer just a source of power. It has become force itself. End quote. The transformative impact of social media lies not just in the fact that it allows individuals to share information in the cybersphere, widely unconstrained by repressive authorities, but also that it becomes a tool for social integration and mobilization. The fact that social media empowers individuals, facilitates independent communication and mobilization, and strengthens an emergent civil society has earned it the name liberation technology a statement with security implications. The so-called Arab Spring, although rooted in wider regional socio-political and socio-economic grievances, was facilitated by the mobilizing impact of social media. Despite widespread regime repression in the region, dissidents were able to organize, share information, and mobilize on the Internet 2.0. The self-immolation of the Tunisian street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi in December of 2010 sparked an unrest that quickly spread through the Arab world as images of state repression were shared on social media and adopted by conventional media, escalating dissidents into rage. When manipulated, social media's impact can be subversive in nature, particularly when used to influence and mobilize individuals and communities. Empowerment can be both positive and negative, particularly in postmodern conflicts in which narratives are of strategic importance. Social media has been particularly powerful in the context of insurgency and counterinsurgency, wherein narratives shape perception and mobilize the insurgents' popular base locally or the counterinsurgents' home base overseas. Social media, therefore, becomes a powerful surrogate for both the insurgent and the counterinsurgent, externalizing the disruptive effects of kinetic warfare into the global cyber realm, where information is made available instantly to a global audience. Traditional theories of insurgencies are a product of the Cold War and the post-colonial conflicts of the 1950s and 60s. The Maoist model represents the basic model on which variants have been developed. All models share the same basic assumptions. First, they are limited to a specific territory, which is very often confined to the boundaries of a state. Second, the insurgent group offers an alternative ideology to the one it is opposing. Third, the target of the insurgent's propaganda is the population of the territory they aim to take over. As insurgents are weaker, they need popular support. Finally, in order to survive and to prosper, the insurgency needs a sanctuary where it can regroup, plan its actions, and manage its logistics. This sanctuary, by definition, should be out of reach for the counterinsurgent. 
The ultimate objective of the insurgent movement is to delegitimize the governing authority by a series of subversive actions, which range from propaganda to the use of force and terrorism against the authority. Therefore, insurgency is a form of intrasocietal conflict in which a non-governing body attempts to destroy, reform, or degrade the legitimacy of and popular support for the incumbent, incumbent governing body. Insurgents utilize political activism, subversion, propaganda, and intimidation of the population to achieve these objectives and to develop their own political support for alternative governance. In the 21st century, insurgencies are no longer fought in the physical realm of the battlefield alone, but ever more in a battle over narratives in cyberspace. Social media provides the insurgent with a tool to reach a far greater group of recipients, doing so instantly, more ubiquitously, and with lower transaction costs than in the past. Nascent insurgencies, therefore, a reach widely dispersed audience of potential recruits, supporters, and allies at a very low cost and with a less chance of discovery. Not only is the recruitment process no longer constrained by geographical boundaries, but social media allows insurgencies to broaden their base by aggregating anger, frustration, and resentment inherent in so many societies. With social media, the process of aggregating local grievances is shifted to the global cybersphere, where it is easy, cheap, and safe to initiate contact with a large audience of aggrieved individuals. It becomes easier for the insurgent to find and contact the type of recruit who is susceptible to his narratives. Also, thanks to various communication channels in cyberspace, such as chat rooms, mobile applications, and email, the insurgent can identify potential human surrogates who might be likely to embrace the values and ideologies of the group. Faced with this new reality, new approaches to insurgency start from the observation that global communication technology and social media decouple the insurgent's dissidents from particular societal identities and subsume it into a global narrative of dissidents. Australian Army Lieutenant Colonel David Kilcolan, a former member of U.S. Army General David Petraeus's team of advisors, has been very instrumental in reviving theories of global insurgency. He argues that, quote, Al-Qaeda and similar groups feed on local grievances, integrate them into broader ideologies, and link disparate conflicts through globalized communications, finances, and technology. All that through the means of digital technology and social media. End quote. The main characteristics of global insurgency are that unlike traditional insurgencies, they are transnational and can be composed of many ideologies. Their audience is no longer limited to one community, and thus they no longer require a local sanctuary. Indeed, their sanctuary is in the global, anonymous cyberspace. Their financial needs are easier to, easier to fulfill through crowdfunding. Insurgents are super-empowered. This means that they can organize themselves very flexibly in non-hierarchical networks, which can work collaboratively on tasks of mutual interests, arm and educate themselves, gather intelligence, and plan and pursue strategies which they could not have done otherwise. This decentralization of action is supported by local sources that are external to the insurgency itself. 
In fact, the global insurgent externalizes the burden of insurgency to super influencers on social media, individual accounts that on a specific social media platform have the power to convey messages to a significant group of followers authoritatively and credibly. Relayed by the diffusion of social media, super-influencers consciously or subconsciously promote the global insurgents' narrative, thereby expanding the insurgents' reach, penetration, and potentially legitimacy. More powerful than factual information is the dissemination of emotions, which are key to shaping narratives and values in a globalized world. As former British Prime Minister Tony Blair observed, quote, Globalization begets interdependence, and interdependence begets the necessity of a common value system to make it work, end quote. In today's globalized world, the battle for global values and specific worldviews has become a defining feature of the character of war. Technology has enabled the deterritorialization of insurgency and created what John Robb calls open-source warfare. This refers to the fact that war is no longer a closed and state-centered affair, but an open phenomenon that pits states against non-state groups. The goal of traditional guerrilla tactics of exhausting the adversary by targeting its societal rather than military infrastructure remains but is offered new interpretation through the concept of system disruption. Concepts such as open-source warfare rely on the core concept of surrogate warfare, namely that the application of coercion or coercive means is subcontracted to different indirect and often coincidental surrogates that do not necessarily support the goals of the source of coercion. The campaign of the self-declared Islamic State is a good example illustrating the concept of open-source warfare, whereby the quasi-state of ISIS as a patron has partially externalized first its insurgent activities and later its terrorist activities to cyberspace. Unlike insurgent activities, terrorist activities are easier to create and sustain in the contemporary security environment. Looking at the setbacks ISIS suffered through 2016 and 2017, which brought it to the verge of collapse, the global insurgent group has increasingly become a global terrorist organization relying on encrypted messaging platforms such as Telegram and on social media as surrogates to spread narratives, diffuse the resonance of its attacks outside Syria and Iraq, and instill terror in Western publics. At its core, ISIS's strategy as a global terrorist organization relies on social media influencers to target the socio-psychology of Western publics. Super-influencers, such as journalists, analysts, and commentators, become unwilling, somewhat coincidental surrogates for the Islamic State as they spread the images and messages of terror. Any Twitter feed by key opinion leaders depicting the atrocious scenes of ISIS executions helps the organization to inject terror into the hearts and minds of public around the world. Further, these social media feeds attract sympathizers since the public display of the group's actions in the cybersphere generates an appeal among susceptible audiences. The active use of social media channels offers, therefore, the best vehicle to support such a strategy of shock and awe as it bypasses censorship. This is in spite of the fact that social media companies come under increased pressure by governments to tighten content monitoring. Under these new circumstances, counterinsurgents and counterterrorists have to adapt their strategies of how to tackle these globalized insurgents or terrorists. 
the main effort should be directed toward denying insurgents' objective to generate appeal among individuals susceptible to these narratives. Vulnerable communities need to be presented with a counter-narrative that provides a viable and credible alternative to that of the insurgent. Similar to conventional counterinsurgency campaigns, winning the hearts and minds should be at the core of undermining the insurgent's or terrorist's narrative. Owing to the fact that the possible target audience is so diverse, the concept of winning hearts and minds becomes almost impossible to achieve. A good example of this conundrum was the U.S. Department of State's strategy of countering the ISIS narrative with the Think Again, Turn Away in the ISIS Land video, which consistently failed to resonate with the target audience and failed to provide any tangible results. Similarly, the virtual assemblages that insurgent or terrorist groups create in cyberspace are highly resilient because of the ad hoc nature of the networks that bind patron and surrogates. The redundancy provided by social media makes the closing down of websites, blogs, personal profiles, and accounts fairly ineffective. For instance, when Twitter and YouTube accounts affiliated with ISIS were suspended after the beheading of American journalist James Foley in August 2014, new accounts were created immediately on the diaspora and on the Vkontaki social networking services. Nonetheless, a more proactive intervention by social media hosts, such as Twitter and Facebook, resisted restricting ISIS's freedom of maneuver in cyberspace did have an impact on the group's reach. The ISIS cybersphere was forced to migrate to a more secure and therefore less public social media platform such as Telegram, undermining the virtual reach and penetration of the organization. Ultimately, globalized insurgency or globalized terrorist activity cannot be defeated but only managed since at its core, it relies on too many autonomous surrogates, proliferating messages, narratives, and terror. Hence, digital technologies can be a powerful surrogate, complementing psychological and information operations of both state and non-state actors. Relying on both human and technological surrogates, the cybersphere can act as a force multiplier, an opportunity Russia has been exploiting in recent years. Russia's use of cyber surrogates. The emergence of the cyber domain provided Russia with an opportunity to enhance its expertise in political warfare, which represents all the means at a nation's command, short of war, to achieve its national objectives through both overt and covert operations. From Moscow's perspective, cyber warfare, saturation of the media, and psychological operations are all part of information warfare. Traditional media such as Russia Today, known as RT, and Sputnik, as well as troll factories, are extensively used to push the Kremlin's view and spread alternative discourses so, so as to subvert targeted governments from within. They represent surrogate forms of power to compensate for Russia's relative economic inferiority and military shortcomings, especially in combat operations in comparison to the West. As former Defense Minister Sergei Avanov stated, information, quote, is a weapon that allows us to carry out would-be military actions in practically any theater of war, and most importantly, without using military power, end quote. Since 2007, Russia has extensively used cyber and information operations against Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine, and the United States, among others.
From April 26th to mid-May 2007, Estonia was faced with a nationwide cyber attack on its information and digital technology infrastructure, such as government offices, banks, and communication networks. The offensive used various means, such as denial of service, hacking, and botnets, which hijacked up to 85,000 computers. The major advantage of using botnets is that it conceals the origin of the attack by relying on compromised ghost devices, which act as surrogates. In the case of Estonia, the Kremlin could also rely on surrogates in the form of activists, such as Konstantin Goloshkikov, who organized a network of sympathizers who bombarded Estonian internet sites with electronic requests, causing them to crash. Further, the Russian government also relied on cybercrime organizations, such as the Russian Business Network, an organization likely connected to the Russian mafia, to launch attacks. In August of 2008, Russia for the first time combined kinetic attacks and cyber attacks in an international military operation against Georgia. Russia's information warfare proficiency had substantially improved from the operations in Estonia. The Russian campaign against Georgia involved two types of surrogate operations, one externalizing the burden of war to Russian non-governmental hackers to disrupt and deny computer network services through DDoS attack, and one to disrupt the war over narratives during the military operation. In the first instance, the Russian Ministry of Defense delegated the cyber warfare effort to hackers and criminal organizations who were directed to shut down governmental websites in Georgia as a prelude to conventional military operations. Dedicated websites such as StopGeorgia.ru were set up, allegedly by Russian organized crime organizations, to recruit hacktivists, like Russian cyber specialists, able to launch botnet attacks. Second, Russian bloggers were used as surrogates in a much wider information operation aimed at controlling or disrupting the narratives that emanated from both Georgian and Western media. For instance, when a poll on a CNN website asked whether Russia's actions in Georgia were justified, 92% of respondents, well more than 300,000, answered positively, but Russian bloggers had disseminated the poll on the Russian blogosphere and encouraged their readers to skew the vote. Although it is debatable how much the Russian government directed or controlled these surrogates, the operation nonetheless yielded overall benefits for Russian military operations. In the Ukraine crisis of 2014, the lessons learned by Russia from the previous two cyber operations were applied more professionally and effectively. From mid-2013, a Russian state-sponsored cyber espionage operation, Operation Armageddon, was launched to identify Ukrainian military strategies so as to aid Russian warfare efforts. This was followed by a pro-Russian hacktivist group named Cyberburkut, which penetrated Ukraine's Ministry of Finance and the country's largest commercial bank, stealing and disclosing financial data and documents to undermine the legitimacy of the Ukrainian government. The Voluntary Cyber Offensive Unit Cyberbukut, as depicted by Miko Hyponen, Chief Research Officer at the cybersecurity company F-Secure, then compromised the website of Ukraine's election commission and changed the election results in favor of the ultra-right candidate Dmitry Yarosh. The fraud was detected and corrected just an hour before the declaration of the official results. In an apparent coordination with Cyberbukut, Russian state media nonetheless broadcasted the manipulated results. A new and more forceful cyber operation was then carried out by multiple surrogate hackers on December 23rd of 2015. 
sophisticated cyber attacks shut down three regional power distribution companies, affecting more than 200,000 customers. These offensive cyber operations against Ukraine were made possible by the externalization of the burden of warfare to human surrogates who provided the niche cyber expertise that was needed to bring about disruption with a high degree of plausible deniability. For some observers, Ukraine served as Moscow's cyber warfare testing ground for new forms of global online combat. Both Russia's military intelligence agency, the main intelligence directorate, GRU, and its federal security service, FSB, have been accused of working through several hacker outfits, notably APT-28, or Fancy Bear, tied to Cyberbercut, and APT-29, nicknamed Cozy Bear. These groups of hackers have been accused of infiltrating, stealing, and leaking documents and emails from the U.S. Democratic National Committee the U.S. Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and the personal account of Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, during the 2016 presidential election. The leaks were then made public by a false flag operation, using an alleged Romanian hacktivist, Guccifer 2.0, as well as by WikiLeaks. They inspired journalists, notably from, notably from Politico, The Intercept, and BuzzFeed, who would build their stories around these leaks without questioning their origins, thereby acting unwittingly as surrogates in the Russian campaign to influence U.S. presidential elections. Similar hacking and leaks of French President Emmanuel Macron's political party's emails and documents were carried out on the eve of the French election in 2017, while data stolen from Germany's parliament has not yet been released. The information in cyber domains are key to Russia's strategy of hybrid warfare. Hybrid warfare targets the resilience and stability of a state by instilling a feeling of constant political and economic insecurity among the target state's population. The ultimate goal for Russia and Vladimir Putin personally is to demonstrate that while the West may be able to mobilize and steer liberal narratives in Russia's backyard, Russia can do the same right in the heart of Western democracies. As information is gl available globally, shaping strategic narratives has become a very important dimension of global influence. According to Russia's chief of the general staff, General Valery Gerasimov, quote, the information space opens wide asymmetrical possibilities for reducing the fighting potential of the enemy, end quote. The strength of Moscow's approach lies in the fact that cyber and disinformation operations remain under the threshold of military action, making it hard for adversaries to retaliate by conventional military means. Target states are reluctant to take direct action against Russia as definitive attribution to Putin is difficult to establish, a fact that the director of the NSA already highlighted prior to the 2016 United States presidential election, saying, quote, One of the trends I look for increasingly in the future is, do you see nation states start to look for surrogates as a way to overcome our capabilities in attribution? End quote. Yet, little was done to prevent this. What Russia has shown in the cyber domain is that a disinformation strategy relying on both human and technological surrogates working in sync can create a self-propelling mechanism that magnifies messages across a global cybersphere. In particular, the extensive use of social media bots working in parallel with human surrogates has created power assemblages that provide the patron with reach, deniability, and discretion at minimal human, financial, and political costs. 
The disruptive potential of cybersecurity surrogates will most likely excel to yet unseen levels with the introduction of artificial intelligence, or AI. AI as the ultimate technological surrogate? The concept of AI dates back to the early 1950s. In the words of the founders of the discipline, AI represents the ability of making a machine behave in ways that would be called intelligent if a human were so behaving. In other words, it is the capability of a computer system to perform tasks that normally require human analytical skills. Although the definition is oversimplified because the parameters of intelligence are still ill-defined, it nonetheless identifies key attributes that can act as points of reference. In most basic terms, intelligence refers to the ability to understand, learn, and adapt to new environments. AI refers therefore to software, algorithms, or machines that exhibit characteristics of human reasoning, problem solving, perception, learning, planning, and or knowledge. For decades, AI was not taken seriously, as the ambitions were widely undermined by the lack of scientific and technological advances. Google's co-founder, Sergey Brin, admitted that he, quote, didn't pay attention to AI at all. Having been trained as a computer scientist in the 1990s, everybody knew that AI didn't work. People tried it. They tried neural nets, and none of it worked. Fast forward a few years, and now AI touches every single one of Google's main projects, ranging from search to photos to ads, everything that we do. The revolution in deep nets has been very profound. It definitely surprised me, even though I was sitting right there." End quote. Two technological developments brought AI to the fore since the beginning of this decade. First, advances in the miniaturization of transistors has allowed for the realization of Moore's law, positing the, double of, the doubling of available computing power about every 18 months. Second, with the emergence of mobile and connected devices, the amount of data generated on a daily basis has exploded. If the engine is the algorithm run by sophisticated computing power, data is the engine's fuel. For algorithms to work properly, they have to be trained and to process hundreds of thousands and sometimes even millions of data sets. It is estimated that 2.5 exabytes were produced every day in 2011. This is the equivalent of 250,000 libraries of Congress, or 530 million songs. By way of comparison, in 2011, as much data was produced in a week as during the entire year of 2002. With the rise of the Internet of Things, or IoT, the ever-increasing network of computer-connected objects, machine, and people, it is estimated that 8.4 billion connected devices were in use worldwide by the end of 2017, and 20.4 billion are estimated to be operational by 2020. These devices will generate 44 zettabytes of data, which is equivalent to 5,200 gigabytes for every individual on Earth or the approximate equivalent of the books that would be on a 52-kilometer bookshelf. The combination of increasing computer power and available data has enabled breakthroughs in AI, notably in the field of machine learning, through supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement learning algorithms. Algorithms such as Google's DeepMind AlphaGo, which won at the game of Go against the world's best player, and Libertus, which defeated some of the best human poker players, has been able to make remarkable breakthroughs in learning some of the most sophisticated and complicated games that exist. 
Repeated rounds played by the algorithms allowed the machines to perfect their strategies and achieve superhuman performance. Current algorithms, unlike Deep Blue, which was programmed to beat chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov through brute computational force capable of evaluating 200 million moves per second, are built on learning techniques, and some are tested so as to make them general-purpose frameworks that can achieve superhuman performance across many different domains. For instance, a variant of AlphaGo was used by Google to manage power usage. It reduced the amount of electricity needed for cooling by 40%, which translated into a 15% reduction in overall power use. By using reinforcement learning techniques and enough simulations, these algorithms are able to increasingly learn and perform new tasks, providing enough data can be processed. More importantly, these algorithms are then no longer just imitating human decision-making processes, but exploring new approaches to problem-solving and courses of action through induction, abduction, and deduction based on probabilistic and statistical logics. Nonetheless, current forms of AI are still characterized as narrow or weak because they are designed to perform a narrow scope of tasks in contrast to strong artificial intelligence, which is comparable to human-level intelligence. Still, autonomous technologies that rely on the different techniques of AI are increasingly influencing warfare, both in the cyber and the physical domains. The weapons that derive from these technologies have the potential to bring surrogacy to a new level. The use of AI for subversive operations. Although still at their infancy, current developments in AI provide some indications on the way they could influence surrogate warfare in the future. Two areas of possible applications can already be identified, subversive and offensive operations. The Internet 2.0 enabled individuals and democratized subversive operations as shown earlier in the chapter. As Rand Waltzman observed, quote, The ability to influence is now effectively democratized since any individual or group can communicate and influence large numbers of others online, end quote. The development of algorithms in the fields of voice and fake face recognition or conversational agents achieved major breakthroughs recently. These developments bring subversion to a new level and open the field for mass computational propaganda. Machine-driven communication tools coupled with video, image, and voice editing algorithms are unleashing unseen ways for mass manipulations. With the current state of AI, it is now possible to manipulate images and swap faces on videos without the human eye being able to recognize the forgery. Worse, face-swapping applications such as DeepFake and FakeApp are now accessible to anybody. Such technologies democratize the production of fake news. Moreover, the emergence of Generative Adversarial Networks GANs, can create highly realistic, forged videos of policymakers and state leaders making false statements. The rise of creative AI will add a new and more immediate dimension to the post-truth era, something that will be compounded by the widespread use of social bots and trolls disseminating disinformation. A study of pro-Syrian regime botnets demonstrated that over a period of 35 weeks from April to December in 2012, the bots generated more than 1,600 tweets per week, or roughly a tweet every six minutes. These botnets' main activity was to consolidate disinformation by misdirecting the audience to unrelated content using popular hashtags. For instance, the bot redirected social media attention away from Syria to political unrest in Bahrain, 
or created tweets talking about Syria's cinema on hashtags that were related to Syria's civil war. The study concluded that despite their intense activities, the bots did not manage to mimic human behaviors. With the development of AI highlighted above, however, the ability of social bots to mimic and influence human behaviors will most likely rapidly change in the near future. The automation of the creation and dissemination of high-quality but fake news stories in multimedia productions will become an increasingly real threat. GANs can now generate synthetic output that resembles human production, and in a very near future, sophisticated AI systems might allow groups to target precisely the right message at precisely the right time in order to maximize persuasive potential. The increasing automation of political manipulation by social bots, which will be more and more able to learn by themselves, will allow for the rise of true technological surrogates waging psychological and disinformation operations in the cybersphere with extensive disruptive effects in the real world. The Militarization of AI The logical trend in future warfare seems to head in the direction of increasingly autonomous weapon systems. In contested environments, some level of autonomy is crucial for an unmanned platform to remain a viable operational tool. Indeed, weapon autonomy removes requirements of a communication link to remotely controlled weapon systems such as unmanned aerial systems, which can prompt command delays and is vulnerable to electromagnetic disruption such as spoofing or jamming, as well as capture that could reveal the drone's location and sensor feeds. Autonomy in weapon system is a relative concept and subject to different interpretations. The difficulty in defining autonomy, and hence AWS, lies in the fact that autonomy can refer to at least three completely different concepts, the complexity of the machine, the type of decisions or functions being automated, and the human-machine command and control relationship. From a technical point of view, the complexity of a system can be classified in three categories, automatic, automated, and autonomous. Automatic systems are those that mechanically respond to sensory input and step through predefined procedures and whose functioning cannot accommodate uncertainties in the operating environment. Typical examples here include the V-1 cruise missile, the later V-2 rocket, and landmines. Automated systems are those that are programmed to logically follow a predefined set of rules in order to provide an outcome. Their outputs are predictable if the set of rules under which they operate are known. Homing PGMs, such as the United States' AIM-120 Advanced Medium Range Air-to-Air Missile, Israel's Iron Dome Missile Defense System, and South Korea's SGRA-1 Border Sentry Guns would fall into this category. A fully autonomous system is capable of understanding higher level of intent and direction. From this understanding and its perception of its, of its environment, such a system can take appropriate action to bring about a desired state. It is capable of deciding a course of action from a number of alternatives without depending on human oversight and control, although these may still be present. According to the U.S. Department of Defense, which has an open public policy on AWS to be autonomous, a system must have the capability to independently compose and select among different courses of action to accomplish goals based on its knowledge and understanding of the world itself and the situation. The level of autonomy in weapons is a contested debate that has triggered the 2016 establishment of a governmental group of experts on lethal AWS at the UN 
which is tasked with developing an internationally recognized definition of the term. Although there is no still no internationally agreed definition, Heather Hoff and Richard Moyes suggest that a fully autonomous weapon system should fulfill three functions. One, move independently through its environment to arbitrary locations. Two, select and fire on targets in its environment. And three, create and or modify its goals, incorporating observation of its environment and communication with other agents. In other words, fully autonomous weapons have the ability to complete the entire engagement cycle, which comprises the search for a target, the decision to engagement, and the engagement of the target on its own. Paul Scharr, who has written the most extensive study on autonomous weapons so far and who led the group that drafted the first official U.S. policy on autonomy and weapons, argues that there is only one example of an autonomous weapon in use today, the Israeli Harpy. The Harpy is an anti-radiation, loitering weapon capable of finding and attacking radar installations autonomously. Others argue that, for instance, the British dual-mode brimstone-guided missile is also an autonomous weapon because it is currently the only operational guided munition with autonomous target selection. Both the Harpy and the Brimstone are not assigned a specific target, but rather an area where they will have to find targets that match a predetermined target type. For Shar, the inability of the Brimstone to loiter over a long period of time, however, disqualifies it as a fully autonomous weapon system. This discussion shows that today there are only a handful of platforms that would qualify as fully autonomous weapons. The first reason is technological, as the current level of technological know-how does not yet allow sufficient discrimination between enemy and own forces as well as civilians in a contested environment. There is also an organizational argument that explains why militaries have not pushed aggressively to develop fully autonomous weapons. These weapons are expensive and can be used only once, reducing the commander's propensity to fire them unless targets are clearly identified before launch, a fact that somewhat undermines the added value of autonomous weapons. Thus, the issue of reusability is key in the decision of the commander to engage such weapons. Reusability is not an issue in the cyber domain, where codes can be replicated easily with little or no additional costs. It is, therefore, very likely that this domain will see the first deployments and proliferation of fully autonomous weapon systems. For instance, at the Black Hat USA conference in August 2018, IBM presented a proof-of-concept dubbed Deep Locker, which is an AI-powered malware, highly targeted and evasive. DeepLocker changes the rules of malware evasion by hiding its malicious payload in benign carrier applications such as a video or a video conferencing application, but uses AI to create unique trigger conditions that can be unlocked only if the intended target is reached. The neural network is trained to recognize a specific person, for instance, and then it produces the key needed to unlock the attack. In the words of IBM researchers, you can think of this capability as similar to a sniper attack in contrast to the spray-and-pray approach of traditional malware. Staging different attacks only requires training the neural network to identify new targets. In the physical world, drones also solve the problem of reusability as they can return home if they do not find their target. Hence, the next generation of experimental drones, such as the UK's Tenaris, 
France's Neuron, and the American X-47B are becoming increasingly autonomous as they are equipped with loitering technologies so as to make them more persistent and enhance their surveillance, reconnaissance, and target acquisition abilities. These technologies, combined with target discrimination algorithms, represent a new frontier of autonomy where the weapon does not have a specific target but a set of potential targets and it waits in the engagement zone until an appropriate target is detected. Moreover, this type of drone is less expensive than conventional fifth-generation aircraft. Commanders are thus inclined to risk their use autonomously as both the financial costs of failure and the costs of loitering are minimized. Consequently, the merger of AI and lower-cost unmanned platforms extensively enhances the patron's choice of technological surrogates. Moreover, procured in large numbers and equipped with collective intelligence algorithms or collective autonomy, these unmanned platforms can be used in swarms. Without the need of human patron control, swarms will be able to operate autonomously, not just supplementing patron capability and capacity, but more importantly also replacing it. The swarming tactic relies on overwhelming and saturating the adversary's defense system by synchronizing a series of simultaneous and concentrated attacks. It magnifies the military principles of mass, coordination, speed, and concentration of forces at a new level. Autonomous swarms will allow the concentration of a large number of military assets with very few or no human controllers and with far quicker reaction times in changing situations than any human could ever produce. In October 2016, the DoD conducted an experiment in which 103 Perdix microdrones were launched from three F-A-18 combat aircraft and assigned four objectives. In the words of William Roper, the director of the DoD's Strategic Capabilities Office, quote, the drones shared one distributed brain for decision-making and adapting to each other like swarms in nature, end quote. The drones collectively decided that a mission was accomplished, flew on to the next mission, and carried that one out. Because of the ease in which autonomous technologies can proliferate, some posit that the development of AWS will probably have a destabilizing impact on strategic stability in the future. The adoption of swarming tactics in the context of AWS also risks upsetting strategic balances by neutralizing defense systems and therefore giving an advantage to the offensive. Therefore, deterrence would be replaced by preemption, a very unstable international configuration that encourages ex escalation and arms races. Despite these potentially negative consequences, AWS will very likely be an important element of future surrogate warfare. For democracies, the military applications of AI offer the prospect of decreasing the relative burden of warfare on their populations and of reducing the risk to their military personnel. For authoritarian regimes, which tend to have a low level of trust in their people, AI offers the ability to outsource some elements of military decision-making to algorithms, reducing reliance on humans to fight wars. The weaponization of AI is truly representing another paradigm shift in the ways wars will be fought. The development of increasing autonomy in weapon systems is very likely to contribute to reinforcing the practice of surrogate warfare. 
The reason is that unlike previous technological advancements, autonomous weapons no longer act as a force multiplier to the patron, but as a surrogate that operates with limited or possibly in the future, no human control. Choosing courses of action from a variety of alternatives based on the machine's own understanding and assessment of the situation as the AI-powered DeepLocker malware starts to show. AWS makes warfare even remoter as the human is further removed from the battlefield and operational decision-making. Thereby, they minimize costs and provide potent capability and capacity while achieving both deniability and discretion. The downside of this delegation, however, is the loss of human control over warfare, as will be discussed in the next chapter. Conclusion Technology has always been a constituent part of warfare. Nonetheless, technological progress that allows technology to increasingly emancipate itself from human control has only recently emerged, and it presents new opportunities for fighting surrogate warfare in the future. The development of standoff weapons introduced a new technological component of remoteness to warfare, providing the patron with means to observe, from drones, and to strike from a distance, with PGMs and ballistic missiles. It was not until after 9-11 that remote technology reached a new level, allowing for both the observation and strike capabilities to be combined. Weaponized UAVs opened a new chapter in warfare, in which drones can be increasingly used as surrogates. They allow the transfer of the burden of war to the machine, enabling the military commander to spare the infantrymen from operational risks while allowing the policymaker to achieve military objectives discreetly and with plausible deniability. With the introduction of smartphones a decade ago, the digitalization of everyday life made instantaneous and constant access to information a reality. Unlike traditional media, social media expands the reach, frequency, permanence, and immediacy of information, narratives, and discourse. The transmission of information has become ubiquitous. By reducing transaction costs, the internet and social media make it easy and cheap to initiate dialogue with communities around the globe. Insurgent and terrorist groups massively benefited from digital technology. The more these groups can make the conflict about affinity, identity, and justice, the greater the advantage for them. In an era of instantaneous and global communication, this is best achieved by promoting powerful narratives targeted at different audiences and amplified by relying on influencers as surrogates. It is these surrogates that counterinsurgents and counterterrorists have to rely on as well in the contest for legitimacy and information supremacy. The virtual cyber domain is predestined to warfare by technological surrogate. Cyberspace is the only domain which is entirely man-made, and that entirely relies on technology to work. Cyberspace is less subject to geopolitical or natural boundaries and is entirely susceptible to human creation and manipulation. Cyberspace and its dominant role in the control of critical infrastructure is the perfect illustration of Ulrich Beck's concept of risk society. The technological dependency of modern societies has indeed created new vulnerabilities by being overly reliant on critical infrastructure, whose destruction can lead to the paralysis of an entire country. In a sense, postmodernity has favored the application of decapitation strategies that are aiming at the state's center of gravity. As mentioned in Chapter 2, postmodernity has made our societies more vulnerable, not only by increasing the number of critical infrastructure, but also by empowering individuals to a level unseen in human history. 
Through the use of technological surrogates in the cyber domain, a single individual can now have a strategic effect that was unthinkable in the past. For instance, the quantity and quality of Snowden's leaks has been exceptional in the history of intelligence and espionage. Published on social media and websites such as WikiLeaks, these revelations have generated strategic effects by exposing some of the NSA's most guarded secrets. The complete story of the leak's effects still has to be written, but it has become increasingly apparent that Snowden and WikiLeaks could be considered surrogates of Moscow's war of influence against the U.S. The cyber domain has allowed Russia to magnify its practice of political warfare by combining it with traditional military operations. The resulting practice of hybrid warfare offers the advantage of deniability, shielding the patron against international lawsuits, which still require conclusive identification of an individual or state as perpetrator to establish attribution. The cyber domain provides the terrain in which AI can develop. Recent breakthroughs in AI have been made possible by increasing computing power combined with the growing availability of data. The more data is generated, the better algorithms can be trained for specific tasks. With a very few exceptions, current weapons are, the best, are at best semi-autonomous, requiring at one point human input in the decision-making cycle. However, the increasing civilian research into AI is being transferred into military applications. The new assemblage between the public and private sectors contributes to exploring and achieving novel degrees of autonomy in weapons. While new AI-powered AWS creates surrogates par excellence, these technological developments do not, however, solve enduring philosophical problems arising from the nature of warfare. As Sarah Kreps and John Keg observed, quote, Advanced technology has allowed states to limit the unintended damage of targeted violence, but the ability to undertake more precise, targeted strikes should not be confused with the determination of legal or ethical legitimacy, end quote. In other words, all technological platforms, through increased automation and autonomy, allow for better differentiation of target potential targets. They do not necessarily make the decision of target engagement easier, as ethical and moral judgment remains, for the time being, a human prerogative. Because the decision to kill should never be arbitrated by technology so as to avoid the disturbing question raised by Christopher Koch of how much longer will war need us, the issue of control and autonomy represents a key dilemma of surrogate warfare.